SUSE is a global leader in innovative, reliable, secure enterprise-grade open source solutions relied upon by more than 60% of the Fortune 500 to power their mission-critical workloads. They specialize in business-critical Linux, enterprise container management and edge solutions, and collaborate with partners and communities to empower customers to innovate everywhere, from the data center to the cloud to the edge and beyond. SUSE puts the open back in open source, giving customers the agility to tackle innovation challenges today and the freedom to evolve their strategy and solutions tomorrow. Welcome to Episode 5, Kubernetes Center of Excellence, brought to you by our friends at SUSE. We've got Rob here. We've got Derek here. It's been a while. Very excited for what we're going to do. Guys, how are we doing? Good, good. Derek, you? I'm good. I'm good. I'm still waking up. My coffee has not hit me the way I would hope it would. You must be on first cup. <laughs> That's true. Cup three. <clears throat> For my we're friends at Grumpy Cafe. We've moved to Diet Coke. That's how far in the day it is. For <laughs> us. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's deep. You're, you're yearning for the weekend. I can tell. <laughs> uh, you know, when your company's based out of Europe, you get up earlier. You got to, I think people realize that you, you, know, you get up earlier. Uh, Fridays, they, uh, they, they get, they're, they're up in Adam on Fridays. So I get a lot of early mornings on Fridays. That's a good Which point. So it's been yeah, a while. So you, We're on episode five. Has it been yeah. how many episodes? It has. Yeah, it's um, five. There was a little half episode um, mm. where I did a monologue. That was thrilling. Solid. Um, <laughs> a <solid>. monologue. <laughs> it was. Uh, it was a lot of passion there. I have to admit, I was like, "Ooh!" I was like, "I was like, you were, you were, you were on the next level of passion." So I, I, I think I tweeted that one. I was just like, I was like, "Hey, I put that one out there." Thank you. I appreciate that. I was, I was a little. Uh, I just felt like I had to say something, you know. And I think I was nice. I think. Was it about like, coffee? Was that, that no. was that topic? No. <laughs> <laughs> it, was, it was not about coffee. That 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 will be episode seven. How ah. Kubernetes makes coffee better. Um, we'll find doesn't. a way. Uh, <laughs> I'm sure someone's done that. The Kubernetes powered coffee pot. I'm, I'm, I, the maker space out there has probably done it. It's probably a Raspberry Pi with K3s. You're running something to you know make coffee, schedule it, the whole nine yards. I'm sure. I'm sure if we Google that, someone out there will Google that and post it on, on, on the YouTube channel here. Just be like, here, someone's already done it. You, you fed I'm me a lot. Sure so now, be... now I have to rant. It's it's happening. So <laughs> if they could, if they could create a a coffee machine and it 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 ran, you know, K3S on it, and it could regulate the temperature of the water to the right temperature with any type of efficiency then it'd be a big win. You could say Kubernetes made coffee better well, because the, the that, dirty the dirty secret here is like the Mr. Coffee, all your traditional kind of coffee pots you get at like Target or Walmart or whatever, um, they don't they don't regulate temperature very well. So there's about three or four on the market that actually do and they tend to be, you know, two, three hundred dollars. I don't know if it would be period. Kubernetes though. That'd be more about the sensor for the water and the, the, the temperature gauging, right? Like more yeah, than it would be about stuff. Kubernetes specifically. 
but it, but is it is it the temperature as it's brewing or is it the temperature of the pot holding it warm because mine bo like boils the coffee like after like 15 minutes i'm like i'm not drinking the slop right so <laughs> is it uh, is it what is that ma magic sauce for you yeah like, so where does it need to manage so we understand so when you're brewing you want to be in the low 200s right so just below boiling that's kind of the optimal temperature to extract coffee and a lot of the like Mr. Coffee or I'm, I'm kind of picking on them. That's not very nice, but um, you know, your, your generic like $50, $60 coffee makers, um, a lot of the water doesn't even hit 200 degrees. Mm. So it actually under extracts the coffee. So just like in anything. And so coffee and food is my thing. Um, <laughs> that's what I'm passionate about along with technologies and Kubernetes, but <laughs> <laughs> the 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 thing with brewing coffee is like if your coffee is really great then you have to have the right elements like the right temperature of water and the right grind and if you do all that you can make a really great cup of coffee and one of the big challenges for the the regular consumer at home is like the regular coffee pot just doesn't make it happen and so if k3s can solve for that wow we're moving on <laughs> I don't I don't know if there's a big enough amount of people that like are as passionate about you as coffee versus they're just like just give me caffeine that has a resemblance of coffee. Like, That's correct. No one cares. Yeah. yeah. But I think I have to so you know in my role in the community space around Kubernetes and open source everything you'd be surprised when you come to the table with a Raspberry Pi and K3S and what people would try to do with it. It's amazing. Oh, absolutely. Like it's, yeah, we absolutely. are, we are beyond, oh, I have my personal website running on that. I'm like, oh yeah, it's great. I mean, everyone's done it. Now it's like, what can I power with K3S, a couple containers on a Raspberry Pi and then the problems I solve. And when I see some of the stuff, I, you know, you go on that Twitter dive, you know, like the, the good Twitter dive and what you see some of these makers doing, you're like, wow, you, I was like, dang, I'm like, and then I feel like embarrassed for like me to putting on a course about here's how to put K3S on a Raspberry Pi. And here's something because some of these people are doing stuff that it's at that next level. And I would be surprised if someone's out there going like, all right, here's a sensor, here's a heating element, and we're going to make coffee the, the, the Nick way, right? Like <laughs> this is Nick's, like, this is for you, Nick. And they're just going to put this whole setup together and just tell you how they did it. That's what I love about that, that space is that the maker space of K3S is absolutely bar none. One of the coolest things to watch. Well, if you come across that, I tag me because I want to see that. That'd be cool. <laughs> and also now the whole coffee industry, like the real one has a hit on me. They're like, Oh, it's the Nick way. What did yeah, I show? Yeah. They're going to yeah. get knocked over <laughs> in the streets of Atlanta. It's yeah. well, um, I think the coffee industry as of late has, um, they have worse problems. I think it was outlined in the pandemic where, you know, coffee, the price of coffee spiked there for a minute. I'm like, I'm paying what for this? And this is already fair trade. I'm like, this is this much. And so when they were hit with those supply chain issues through the pandemic, I was kind of like, all right, are we going to recover from it? And they still haven't. So, you know, supply chain makes me think of something though. Supply chain security. Oh, wow. <laughs> what a segue. Look God, at this guy. God, you're, you're just built for this. That is, that is you set him up, he knocks him down, right? Yeah. <laughs> so we did want to talk about that. Thanks, Derek. Um, you're welcome. <laughs> so, you know, this is this has been a newish 
topic for me. So it might be good for our listeners to understand um, what that means. So anyone want to help define what we're talking about there? I don't, I don't want to say there's a, a textbook definition because every company trying to address it has their own definition. Um, but the premise of supply chain security is knowing where all of your packages come from and have everything supply signed through the entire supply chain for it. Now, to set the stage in the open source world, we have it. It's not. It's very rare that you see something like, well, even Kubernetes, right? It's a conglomerate, or even Harvester, right? It's a conglomerate of other open source projects, and you need to kind of know what's kind of what code is coming and where. And for the longest time, we had none of that. We were just kind of trusting it, like, yeah, it works. Yeah, it's, it's just, you know, we pulled it from GitHub. That's their latest thing, and. Um, we realized that wasn't secure. And so what they've been trying to implement over the last couple of years is a level of supply chain security. And there's different ways to doing it. And I'm trying to be nice to other vendors who are solving it in different ways. But one of them is, was it Salsa? Um, and I think we talk, we'll, we can talk about that for a little bit, but I'll take a yeah, breather. I mean, Salsa is the, uh, I guess the new framework that everybody's kind of working together on a bunch of companies, um, not necessarily tech companies, right? Like, mm -hmm. and um, I think Susan's involved with that, right? So it's, uh, and it's going to be a part of Rancher Prime. So, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, we can definitely talk about that. Like, what's the intent of that? And and like, for the, the dummies perspective, which is me, you know, just, this is a big problem in open source kind of wrong, like exactly what you said. Like if you're building proprietary software, you probably know where all that's coming from, but in open source, there's this share and community and borrow and improve. And there's just not a lot of, uh, I guess, you know, you, it's almost like an accountability thing, right? Like something could be out there and it could be malicious and you might not even know, or it could be exploited and you would have no idea. Mm -hmm. Derek's kind of yeah. a security guru. So maybe, you can so there's, on that. there's different problems that all play into this that could be addressed. At, and when I say problems, there's different scale of issues that we're talking about. The, the most minute, simple version is to Rob's point, where did my packages come from? Right. But it's, it becomes a rabbit hole issue of turning over rocks to go, Oh, where did that come from? And where did that come from? Right. So let me just give you an example. If you're, if you're Sousa, and you're building Rancher. Rancher lives on top of the management server, lives on top of Kubernetes. If we're talking RKE, those are distribution bits for Kubernetes, right? But in terms of Kubernetes and all of the projects that make up those bits, they are not the sole contributors to that project. There are other companies, there's random people. What, what becomes a bigger issue right now is, there's no way, first of all, of standardizing across the industry the way that you do uh, security checksums in terms of not only where the, something is coming from, but also how do we know it's not maliciously intent to begin with in the way that it's built or designed, right? And then secondly, more importantly, is even if you did have a standard for doing that, there's no way of guaranteeing that that is actually implemented across the board industry-wide. So now you go to open source projects and the whole idea behind Salsa and uh, supply chain security in general is it's putting guarantees around where things are coming from, but also guarantees about how things are constructed. 
So if let's not talk about Kubernetes for a second, but just a traditional software dev shop. If I go to release software from a build process into a, an environment, I want to be every time I'm, I'm compiling a new piece of code, I'm running different types of checksums against it. And the same thing when it comes to deploying code. Since the point of which it was compiled and it was put into a repository of some kind for distribution, when I go to download said bits, have those bits been modified in flight? During the process of downloading it, did someone get in the middle of a connection and modify it? That's like the most, um, I would say, difficult scenario for it to even happen because that, that involves being in the middle attacks and being in the middle of a connection and trying to in, in, instantiate modification to something that you're downloading while you're downloading, right? That's mm -hmm. like the extreme end of the spectrum. But the most simple end of the spectrum, you're involved in an open source project and there's 50 people on it and they're from different companies or whatever. And part of the code has been contributed from the people that are directly contributing to this project. But there's another group that are contributing to that project outside of the 50 team members working on this specific piece of work. And that's all the derivative things that were pulled into this piece of work. So if I write a web app, all the derivative libraries that are that web app is leveraging were built by somebody else. How do I know they robustly tested their thing from a security perspective? How do I know those bits are cryptographically signed and ensured that when they're getting pulled in, there wasn't man in the middle attacks there? It becomes like a rolling problem where how far do you have to go to make sure we're safe? Right. That, that's where mm -hmm. supply chain security at length really becomes a much bigger problem because it becomes an industry issue. It's not just, am I doing supply chain security for my deployment environment? Do I know where the packages for the things that I've downloaded, where they were built from? And do I know the, their dependencies, where they were built from? And are they still in the same state that they were intended to be built? Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Like that, that, yeah. that's in a nutshell, the, the biggest crux of the issue. Seems like a big problem to solve, and like most things, it's going to be up to an organization to go. We care about this. Well, it's part partly you have to try and solve for the problem, but at the same time, you only have so many hours in the days, right? So it sure. becomes a risk mitigation issue. Like, how much do we need to check and put checks and balances in place before we say good enough because we're slowing down our ability to actually do the thing we're trying to do, which is build a mm -hmm. product that customers are going to end up leveraging and using. I think that's that's really the thing that we're, we have to be looking towards, aiming towards. What is that sweet spot of enough versus not overly trying to be so secure that we're slowing down our build process and our de development process, that we're not actually building anything anymore. We're, we're in paranoia mode constantly. Your uh, Chrome browser is uh, giving you fits. We lost you for 10 seconds. Uh, <laughs> I don't know what I said. So, no, I don't know what was caught and what wasn't. Security, uh, security, important stuff. <laughs> Something like that. No, the, no. The, the, the long, the, or the, the, sh the short way of putting it, what is ultimately the the right point at which we say we've done enough from a supply chain perspective that we can keep building things versus we're in paranoia mode about worrying where every bit and piece of something has come from right there has to be yeah. a point where the industry says this is good enough and, and you can't be expected to do everything
Yeah, I mean, that, I think that's the challenge with all these new frameworks, right? So, Derek, you would know this from your time in the uh, DoD, the RMF, risk management framework, was you know constructed to solve a problem, but the RMF has become the problem for getting things yeah. done. <laughs> so, because now you've slowed business to a halt. Yeah, exactly. So it's uh, you know, I think this is good. Stuff. I mean, there's been a lot of exploits around you know this this use case in the last couple of years and um stuff i didn't even know about i started asking around and um so it's definitely something that's needed especially in our space where we focus on open source it's uh it's a, you know it's a great idea it's gonna it's gonna take a lot of work you know and i was talking to someone else and they were like you know you can do the work on the front end or you can do the work reactively when everything's on fire which one do you want to do? And I'm like, depends. It's all. Yeah. And I think where we, when we look at like software development, we, we always put security is never written in as we're going. Right. And, you know, Derek and I could go on for miles about writing code. And when you're writing code, that's never part of a user story. It's never, it's always an afterthought because, you know, product just goes, oh, it has to have X functionality. And we don't have a mindset of building that in as we're doing it. So it's always been reactive for us. And now we're trying to move it back up the stack, right? We talk down the stack when you're, you're closest to, you know, being a system admin up the stack, being an actual developer, right? And now it's like, hey, can we start bringing this up the stack? What tools can we put in place? But I mean, for years, you know, I can tell you, you know, anecdotally that, we didn't care about security. You know, it's like, it was like, if it happened, it was like, we'll address it because all of our product owners cared about was, now this is prior, this is not being at SUSE, but all of our, you know, previous product owners I've had has always been like, it has to do X functionality, blah, 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 we don't care. You know, they got, they cared when it came to like processing a credit card and that's pretty much all it worked. That's all it was. But like back in the day, that wasn't part of it. And you're seeing a lot of these older apps as we're modernizing it. You guys probably see it more than I do today. You know, you're seeing all that legacy that has to be reworked for, you know, it's like, hey, did you actually think about that? No, well, we probably should as we're modernizing that through. No, it's a good point. <clears throat> yeah, Go I think this is, the, this is kind of the reason why it's really crucial. Yeah, I mean, supply chain aside, that you have ways to truly mitigate risk or reduce your risk vector because you're never going to be perfect. Um, even if you build it into your software development lifecycle, let's just say, hey, we have secure code reviews weekly and we make sure that people aren't vulnerable to SQL injection or cross-site scripting or whatever. Mistakes are made. Even if supply chain security is perfect, we, we, we've done everything right to the letter. Vlog4j happens, right? Like th there's just – there's no guarantee no matter how tight you are on not just supply chain but just in general security best practices that, that things don't happen whether by accident or uh, by intention. Um, so I, I think this is why it's really important that things like proper intrusion detection, prevention, and um, you know, malicious attack, uh, malicious attack, excuse me, um, monitoring is really important. So like in terms of Kubernetes, you know, people talk about how Kubernetes is way more complex and all these other things. And it is way more complex, but because everything is so software defined, it, it, it actually gives you a little bit of an advantage in this space. When you're using something like New Vector, right? Um, 
not only do you have the ability to have something like an intrusion detection and prevention system in place, but you can do it in a coordinated fashion because mm -hmm. that kind of intrusion detection and prevention system can talk to the entire environment and can coordinate what things are able to talk to what from a networking perspective, what different variants of attacks look like because it can see things end to end. It's not just looking at, oh, I'm a, a host-based intrusion detection system. I'm looking at this particular computer. Did someone try and open a shell or is there a virus on this computer, right? Like simple things like that. Those are great systems, but they only, the reason why they're not going to work in Kubernetes is for a, a vast different number of reasons. But the, the benefit to the complexity of Kubernetes is that everything is accessible from this type of a system to be able to see and observe everything going on in an entire environment. That gives you a lot more uh, of an intelligent way to respond to threats when they do occur, right? So I think that's where a greater emphasis, not only on doing things properly up front is really important, but really having sophisticated and advanced intrusion detection and prevention systems is really going to be key as mm -hmm. these types of environments grow to make sure that attacks aren't cascading across an environment and you're catching them quickly. But you said something interesting there, the simplicity of Kubernetes, and uh, it's not, right? We always talk about how it's not as simple as everyone makes it out to be. And, right. You know, I'm in the world of evangelizing and talking about getting started with Kubernetes, but I'll be the first one to tell anybody that if you're in, if you're starting off, like you need to know just enough to do your job, right? Because yep. Kubernetes is a complex beast. And I, I think it was Kelsey said it was a, it was a platform to build a platform. There's so many extra pieces that you're adding on that one individual or even a team would is going to struggle with every one of bits of those components. And as we see that, you know, it's like how do you make Kubernetes simple, right? And I don't think it's sure. really making it simple. It's it's knowing where you can put a boundaries where maybe this is what you need to know about it, right? And what does the networking guy actually need to know about Kubernetes, right? Well, if he's not in the cluster itself. How much does he really care about it? I mean, to be perfectly yeah, honest it, with you. Yeah, that's why I was trying to say that the environment is way, people look at it as it's a way more complex thing, but by that complexity, we get access mm -hmm. to this observability across an environment that we can't traditionally have, right? And, and that's where things like New Vector simplify the intrusion detection and prevention process because they have access to so much more information to mm -hmm. make intelligent decisions than a, a traditional intrusion detection system would. Yeah, and I was asked once whether that would solve all of, you know, like New Vector, is it posed for everything? I was like, it's, it, it manages what's, what's in that cluster, right? But it's one tool in your entire infrastructure, right? You're gonna have stuff that's gonna be yeah. outside of that, right? You're gonna need to be monitoring that's gonna be outside of what New Vector does within a cluster. What it does is absolutely amazing in my opinion, but outside of that, you need to have that holistic approach and then understand what's going on because it, it might be coming from outside that cluster trying to attack it within your own network. And that's a whole different problem that you might be having. Yeah, of course, absolutely. All right, well, let's, uh, let's take a quick break. We'll be back in just a second. Shadowsoft, a leading Kubernetes systems integrator, is excited to announce the launch of Kubernetes Academy a free online education platform to teach the skills needed to become proficient in Kubernetes. The Shadowsoft Kubernetes Academy platform offers courses and resources for learners of all levels. 
from beginners just starting to learn about containerization to experienced professionals looking to dive deeper into the intricacies of Kubernetes. Kubernetes Academy is now available at academy.shadowsoft.com. Start learning today and join the thousands of IT professionals already on the path to becoming Kubernetes experts. Shadowsoft helps you make optimal possible. All right. Welcome back. Thank you. So we were just talking about simplicity with Kubernetes and how that's, I don't know, probably something that needs to be reframed in the industry. Like there's concept, like Kubernetes can be simple in the way it's constructed, but that doesn't mean managing and scaling it is. And, um, you know, there's a, I love these articles. So there's an article from um, the Enterprisers Project. Shout out to them. Thank you for giving us something to talk about. And it's Kubernetes in 2023. Seven predictions for IT leaders. So we're just going to run through them and uh, see what we agree or disagree or we might agree with all of this. So number one, focus will sharpen on usability and simplicity. Oh, look at that. Interesting. It's funny how that just happened. Um, so we kind of touched on that pre previously. So, Rob, maybe I ask you this, since, like, you know, this is literally what you do for a living is talk to people about, you know, these challenges. What are some of the areas that you've seen that people really struggle with in Kubernetes? Uh, I would say they try, they're told by their leadership, right, to, you got to learn Kubernetes, right? And they learn much more, than, they, they try to bite off more than they can chew based on their role. Right. So um, we, you know, even last night I was at a, a tech meetup and told someone what I did. And he's like, yeah, I'm, I'm a Java developer and I'm it's on my list to learn it. And I'm like, well, what, how much are you going to learn? Right. And I think that's where we don't, we don't like kind of lob off what you actually need to care about first on your role. And I think I mentioned that earlier. And I think if we can simplify it where you need to know what that is. Now, if you're a cluster manager operator, you need to know a lot. In fact, you probably need to know every little, you know, nut and bolt of the system. Right. But if you're a storage operator, like what, what do you care about? Right. And how do you work with those teams to understand enough about storage within the cluster to support it when it's managing what's outside the cluster. Because storage is a, is a different beast, especially when you're within the data center. And I think those are the, that's how you could simplify it based on particular roles. You'll see in small companies that they have like that one infrastructure IT guy who knows everything, who does everything and who's burned out. Um, that doesn't apply to them. That's a different problem with man their personal management that they have. But in a traditional organization, people have particular roles and it's how does that all tie together and how do you care about just enough of Kubernetes to do your job versus trying to care about the whole thing. And if management, you know, puts goals on, scope it to what these individuals do. Now there's a difference, right? When you become in the developer world from a solution architect where you worry everything that's inside your solution, to an enterprise architect where you have to worry about things outside of it. I think at that level, that's when you're gonna, from someone from a developer rank would have to take that deeper dive and understand, you know, deeper concepts like ingress and what services and how pods, you know, would work on a deeper level, right? But I think to simplify it is know what you need to know to do your job better 
versus trying to know it all. That, there's, that makes, they're scowling at me. I think I think he I think <laughs> no, he's got an opinion. I'm no, waiting for it. <laughs> no, no, it's not, it's not like that. It's um, I, it just it, it always depends when people say simplicity on the persona they're referring to, and also mm. to what what the view of simplicity is. This there's there's multiple ways of looking at this. So, technically speaking. The tooling that's out there right now to use Kubernetes, if let's say you have a team that built things properly and they have enough experience to set up Kubernetes properly, there's tooling out there to, to make it much more simple. However, and this is a huge caveat, is that it's not all baked into any one particular solution and it's not done in a way where it's simplified to different user personas um, for different types of things. So like, mm -hmm. If someone's like, I'm a software engineer and I don't want to know anything about Kubernetes. Well, first of all, I think that's a huge mistake because you should know how your software is going to scale in an environment, right? Um, and how it's going to uh, change. And how Minus front-end developers. Yeah, yeah, yeah but, but <laughs> I mean, it, even it, it, do you ever run into a, a developer who says they're truly just a front-end developer anymore? I would argue there should be people who label themselves that way, but they always call themselves full stack. Uh, I use Node and Angular, and that makes uh, me a full stack. Hold up, hold up. <laughs> I, I live with one. My wife is a React developer. She only okay. does React. Doesn't touch Java. She is CSS, yep. React, and that's that's her entire world. If yep. I ask her to learn Kubernetes, it would probably be an argument, like who's going to take the so, trash out or something. Th that That's <laughs> one instance, though. How many times do you interview somebody, and they they claim they're a full stack developer? And they're actually a front-end developer who does a little bit of Node, right? Well, like, that, that's more what I'm getting at. I blame recruiters for that because they'll put on, <laughs> we need a full-stack developer. I'm like, well, what does that mean? Like, does right. he have to, does that person actually know how to, like, what, like, what part of the stack that you want them to be in, right? And I see that sure. it's one of the most infuriating things I still see today. It's like, I'm looking for a full-stack developer. What stack are you looking for? Well, they have to do everything. And I'm like, okay, yeah. so they're really broad, but they don't go in deep. Okay, you're gonna get some pretty. You, you can get them to code it, but is it gonna be the code sure. you want to put to production? So I'm like, sure. Uh, but that's my personal opinion. Uh, either way, this is a tangent that I wasn't intending to go down. Which is, <laughs> if you're a developer working on anything beyond just a UI, mm -hmm. you're dealing with backend APIs at all, right? You you should understand at least a little bit enough about the environment to understand how it scales. But that being said, that's the side note, right? The more predominant note is there's even for people who go, I know enough, you could build out a tech stack that involves Fleet or Argo for CI, CD and build the right premise around how you use a cluster. But again, none of that is pre-baked anywhere. It's the, the whole process end to end is not pre-baked anywhere. And if you're not a developer, if you're talking about to your point of storage person, there's no like user interface for kubernetes where there's a persona where you're just a storage guy or there's a sure. persona where you're just a networking guy to your point right so the tooling's out there but i think that the problem is is how fast this world is evolving it makes it impossible well, not impossible but improbable for an enterprise company which because it's traditionally enterprise companies that and when i say enterprise i mean enterprise only right like mm -hmm. a, a vmware type shop um, that they go, and although they're getting more into open source, they've traditionally <laughs> been successful at going, we've created an enterprise 
stack for doing virtualization. And so it's very persona driven. Mm-hmm. That type of maturity hasn't gotten into this and this type of tooling yet. So I think that's where the simplicity gap is really a bigger problem because you can coach somebody to make their software development life cycle and the way they use Kubernetes more simplistic, but it takes a tremendous amount of coaching and the right tools being leveraged. And then you have to manage those tools, which that becomes somebody's job. So I guess I haven't, I didn't think of it that way. It's like, we have all the tools, but it's like, you have to, you know, I need, you know, I'm the guy who just uses screwdrivers, but you give me a Swiss army knife and it has two different screwdrivers on there, but I have 15 other tools. I need to like narrow it down. So I think that's a a good point is that you're, we don't personify, you know, who is on that traditional infrastructure team to need to know what, or the development team who needs to know what to make those tools kind of available like that. Right. Persona tool best practice. You know, it's like, hey, you're a developer, you need these tools. And if you're storage, you need these tools, but only use like those two ports of those that these tools. Don't use everything. You'll get confused. Right. All right. What's ne- next on ne- our list? Next week. Next week we get to number two. Just kidding. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's good, guys. Important stuff here. All right, number two. Kubernetes goes to the edge. Duh. I mean, it's been there. I think we talked about, you know, Raspberry Pis making Nick coffee. So I I don't I don't see this as something new. I think we're this is this has been there. We're now starting to listen to industries and the way they need it done at their edge, right? Because we have like their edge, like I mean, we we can't even define edge correctly, right? Because I'd argue if you got a few servers in your warehouse or your your store somewhere, well, that's like an edge data center, right? I'd argue that, you know. Yeah. If you have a couple Raspberry Pis running in a truck or something, well, that's an edge. You know, it's just different use cases, and I think that's the hard thing is we, as an entire industry, edge is something we everyone defines differently, and in that, and the true companies that leverage edge, they're not going to they we need to answer their call first and the way they do things so if you think about um, manufacturing right like we come in very arrogantly saying hey this needs to work this way and manufacturing is like yeah we have these entire systems we've been doing it this way we have these particular use case um telecommunications would be another one right like their needs are going to like we have to meet those needs and i think we're meeting, we're starting to meet those needs in the past couple of years. And that we're going to see that going forward is they're going to, we're going to start listening to those industries a lot more. Will I think that I'll see a Ford truck or a Toyota truck? I'm, sh- I'm truck shopping right now, folks. That's why I'm, I can say both. <laughs> I get it. I get it. Um, are we going to, are we going to see Kubernetes running on it? What does it make sense? Right. And you know, it's like, I can see it when it comes to the apps. You know, if you think about it, if you look at the the dashboard outside of like Apple CarPlay, you still have a handful of apps. Does it make sense that those are containers running and there's an underlying? Maybe, maybe I don't, I don't know. Um, I, I don't even know if someone's doing that. I'm sure Ford's gonna tweet me on Twitter going like, "Hey, man, we've been doing that forever. What are you talking about?" So don't touch <laughs> me, guys. I'm sorry. <laughs> sorry, bro. Yeah. Um, in terms of the one thing I want to hone in on that uh, that I, I I think takes 
it needs more focus and you've definitely mentioned it, but like we need to blow it up a little bit is um, the lack of standard around what edge is, right? The, the reason why that, that's not just a big deal in terms of like defining what the edge is to make the article make sense, but in terms of even what the purpose is for how Kubernetes is going to get used and going back to the last thing, user personas, how you want to manage those different variants of what edge might be looks very different depending situationally on what you mean by edge. So mm -hmm. if, if we're talking about like a near edge, far edge, IOT level edge, where you're literally talking about like an edge, edge device, maybe it's your refrigerator. It's about two things. It's about scale. And also what are the types of things that are potentially going to run on those types of workloads. So if we talk about like near edge, which maybe we call like smaller remote data centers, they're pretty much doing the same thing as regular data centers, but you probably have less of them. You might have like 20 of them. So really the end goal then becomes from a management perspective, how do you manage 20 Kubernetes clusters? But if we're talking edge as in raspberry Pis or refrigerators, the use case might be, how do you manage 10,000 of these things? And then also, or maybe even a hundred thousand of these things. And then maybe the end use case result is, well, those Kubernetes clusters are going to be designed because they're on specialized hardware mm -hmm. for refrigerator. They're only going to display a web interface for a screen. Maybe you want to manage it differently because of that. So to your point, I feel like that what needs to almost happen, like Edge is already adopting Kubernetes. That's obviously true. But what needs to happen is, Somebody industry-wise needs to start labeling what the different edge use cases are so that way we can start building as a community tools that make sense for managing these different types of use cases for edge because I think they're going to look very different depending on what the actual implementation is supposed to be. I completely agree. I think where we can define, like I, I could say, Derek, define, define a container for me, right? We have a right. standard. You can just throw it back to me and be like, what are you talking about? We can do that. Yeah. With the edge, we, we we don't have that. And I think if we can kind of define that, it will help when we're talking about it, when we're framing it. And then that, you know, what should we what should what are those best practices? Because I hear that a lot. What what's the best practice for X? And I'm like, well, it depends, right? And yeah. now we're starting to see yeah. best practice. Uh, that's my favorite. It's it best practices. I'm like, great. <laughs> there's, a, there's a lot of options there. Yeah. I mean, right. yeah, they're a framework though, right? Best practice is a framework yes. that every company should say, hey, we're going to start with this and let's build on what's, what, what makes sense for our organization. For sure. Yeah. And I, but I think sometimes like organizations don't see it that way. They go, mm -hmm. what is um, software manufacturers best practices? And it's not really, the right viewpoint. The right viewpoint is what is your use case and what is the best way to construct this? So sure. uh, uh, number three, service mesh, try service meshes. I'm going to get out of the way. Uh, we're still talking I'm about guessing, service mesh? Do they, do they explain what the context of what they're saying is? Like they're expecting there to be more service meshes? Or are they expecting there to be clusters yeah. where you're joining different service meshes or multiple service meshes in the same like do they expand so, what yeah, they all? so ah. there's a quote in here there will be a lot more utilization of federated service meshes company federated. a's mesh interacting with company b's mesh directly as an example i mean that's okay. a, the, 
let's just think of it from a company perspective. Companies have trust issues, and rightfully so, right? And our standard way of communicating between companies is an API, right? And how long did that take to get like, hey, we're gonna we have an open API, you can feel free to consume it. And we're going to follow these standards with it. We're going to be good stewards of it. We're, we're, there's going to be no breaking changes. We'll modify as we go up. If we have to make a breaking change, we'll let you know. We'll communicate it. And now we're going to try the service mesh in that same capacity. And I'm looking at it going like, who's really going to adopt that? Because, I mean, I, I can't commit on where we're going to eat dinner tonight, one. And... <laughs> Two, I don't trust my wife well enough to pick the restaurant because I live in a in a in an area where we don't have good restaurants. So I'm probably gonna be disappointed. So I have trust issues. <laughs> I mean, we just I don't know I don't know how we're gonna this is gonna work. I got I have questions. Like this one, I, I see it. There's a good use case, but I'm just I don't know. Derek, I I agree, but I have a specific opinion, which is I I think this is what people want which is why they say it in the article. But just because you want something doesn't mean it's feasible, especially feasible right now. So like there, there is a couple of service messages. The main one that people talk about is Istio, right? Mm -hmm. That are based on Envoy, but not all service meshes are based on Envoy. And moreover, not everyone is implementing service meshes in the same way, nor are they implementing service meshes with the same tech stack? And not even everybody is using service meshes because they think it's overly complicated. I think this is like a 2025 problem, maybe, if we standardize enough that we can make service meshes go, okay, everyone's using the same kind of schema mm -hmm. and methodology for communicating between these environments. Because if we don't have a standard way of doing that, I see this as a very weird situation where like, hey, maybe 5%, 10%, 15% of the market is using Istio mm -hmm. out of all the people using service meshes. And then they're only able to work with certain vendors because they are also using Istio, right? But they can't work with a bunch of other yeah. vendors because they're not Istio-based or Envoy-based, right? Like I just see like, this is a panacea of what somebody wants, and it's just not going to happen at all this year. Yeah, it's uh, can you define service mesh? And right. like, I, I, we go, we're, we're back to that. Hey, can you define a container? Yeah, I can define it. I have like OCI can tell, that helps me define what a container is. Okay, can we do that with service mesh? Well, maybe. I don't know. Well, I feel it's this. I feel it's that. I mean, this was the easiest one for me to go. Yeah, no. And I'm not technical <laughs> like you guys. <laughs> so it's just too early. It's just yeah, way it, too early for something. It's a to say super. That. It's a super complicated. Just like service mesh for customers is just complicated anyway. So what we're going to start um, meshing meshes? Yeah, I, I'm going to go. I'm going to get. And this is probably going to be trash on Twitter. I think we would see a Linux desktop. The year of the Linux desktop would happen first before like this <laughs> service mesh interacting with company A from B. We'll we'll get a Linux desktop. The year of the Linux desktop will happen first. I think what will definitely come first in this regard is people having two kube clusters where their service meshes are interacting with each other, which is possible. You can use things like mm -hmm. Glue Mesh to do that. But it is if you're not using something like Glue Mesh, it is not an easy thing to set up, maintain, and continually use, right? If that's not even standardized, I can't get, you know, two of my clusters in my own environment to easily communicate. How the hell 
do I expect to do this with people who own their own environments separate from mine? I just like, it's way too no. much, way too soon. There's no, there's no way. All right. What's our, what's our, what's our next one here? Industry verticals turn to Kubernetes as a transformation agent. Ooh. I'm going to go first and then you guys oh. are going to tell me I'm wrong. <laughs> go ahead. <sighs> I, 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 I just, no. No, I, I don't I don't think so. Like like Kubernetes is a huge growth area in technology. It is it is transformational in what it is. But like not not at the industry level. Like it's trans it's transformational at the technology level. What can we do now that we have this? There's like business people don't give a crap about this stuff. And and I think it's I'm not saying they never will, but I think we're probably years away from you know the business going kubernetes will help us sell more sweaters it's just it's just not a thing uh, I, i'm can i go first because i'm gonna oh, yeah, no, no, go ahead go ahead okay it's not transformational to your business it might be transformational to how you run your business in terms of roles and responsibilities of engineers because their understanding of the platform and how they're going to leverage it is going to change from what they originally did no, no, no argument there, but it is not going to change your business. Artificial intelligence used properly could change your business. Sure. Kubernetes is a management plane for sure. things. It does not transform your business. It transforms how you operate and maintain and run your business, technologically speaking. That, All right. So anyways, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to play the devil's advocate here and say, Yay. yes, I'm going to say it can. And here's why, because I've never seen a traditional lift and shift of any legacy code running True. on retail servers being just arbitrarily thrown into a cluster and it works magically because it doesn't happen because if it, if it would, I, I mean, most of us would be out of business, right? It's just not going to happen. So I think where it's a transformation agent is it's now putting focus that that C-level needs to see, we're needing to rewrite some of these apps. We're needing to modernize these apps. And I think it's, changing the tech stack and things like older version of Java, you know, just things like that. It's modernizing their, their code base because they can't just pick it up and move it. Right. Cause those are, it's yeah. not working. So I think it is, but it's not what it's not going to sell more sweaters. Now what it will do is, well, you're going to attract better developers, right? you're going to check better staffing. Why? Because I'll be honest with you, if I, if I was told, I'm like, oh, I'm going to work on Java 8 or Java 17 or whatever the latest version is, what do you want to work on? The old crappy legacy stuff? Or do you want to be working on newer, you know, where do you want to be in that? And if you talk to someone out of a coding camp or you talk to someone in their career, they're like, I don't want to be doing VB6 anymore. I'm kind of tired of this. I want to be moving it up. So I think it could, but it's not going to sell you more sweaters. It might get you better staff, but it might set you up for a better code base down the road. So I'll play a little bit of devil's advocate. So I agree with you. I, I agree with you, but I guess it's, it's it's subjective to what someone means by transformative. Sure. And maybe, I, maybe I'm reacting too quickly to the word transformative because the way that you're saying it, I 100% agree with you. Yes. Yeah. I guess when I think of transformative, especially when they say transform an agent for transformation, to me that reads like 
I'll just use this. It's easier for me to talk to an example than specifics, but sure. like the way that Domino's was a pizza business changed into a um, a logistics company that happens to sell pizza, where like they track the way pizza gets delivered to your yeah. front door, and like literally they've talked about this internally. They have like. They used to be almost primarily all just shops of people working at a pizzeria, and now they're like 99% IT personnel, and they're yep. a much smaller uh, you know, draft of people that are actually facilitating the pizza-making right. process. That, to me, is how I see transformative, but that's just the way that I was looking at it. The way you're sure. talking about it, I 100% agree with you. Uh, Domino's is an example, and we're, we're a Domino's house here. Um, Domino's for us, is, it's like it's like a it's like a tech company that has a pizza problem. That's how I always look at it. Because right. like when you see like the app, and they had a blip yesterday where my wife couldn't order on the app, and you would have thought world ended because we needed pizza. We, were, <laughs> we had date night for the kids, and we were like kids needed yeah. to eat. And the app had a problem, but I think that's when I see that. But also when you modernize, you you think of you like you think of the new processes, right? If I have to rewrite yeah. it, then why is the product coming in here? So I think if it's framed correctly, maybe, but if it's not framed correctly, I, yeah, I'm, I'm going to agree with you guys. Yeah. Yeah. So I guess it's subjective is what we're saying. Yeah. All right. What's our next? All right. So five is community battens down the supply chain security hatches. Uh, we've already talked about this. So we're going to skip yeah. this. Yeah. Okay. See ya. Number six, we kind of touched on this. Just a second ago, Kubernetes and Java? Question mark. What is this? I. No one wants to talk about that, do we? Um. Uh, no, Derek I'll, does. <laughs> I'll keep it short. I think this is also is it, kind of subject subjective. What are they asking though? Let me let's set the stage. Are they yeah, saying like yeah. is Java going to replace, you know, is it going to replace some of the things that build apps for Kubernetes, right? Because we I always conceptualize them differently. Java is to build apps that run in Kubernetes, where Go, Rust, um, those are the things that run there are apps that you build that run for Kubernetes, right? So those are, if we conceptualize it, are they saying that Java is going to replace Go? Like that would be pretty inflammatory. I, no, I think that they're talking about think, getting rid of Java as a primary language for software development for things that end up in Kubernetes because that's been no. talked about a lot. So I think that's what they're referring to. Correct me if I'm wrong, Nick. No, I, they, I agree. I think they're basically saying like, you know, Java's Java's not going anywhere. And it's it's eventually going to find its way on Kubernetes if the use case of the application fits, um, which is kind of yeah, of course. That's I think we would all agree with that. But yeah, this is why I think it's a, it, it's subjective towards like because the question if 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 I because I glanced over this article before we started, I mm -hmm. think they were trying to hone in on like is Java going to be completely dead because of kubernetes because anyone who wants to go into kubernetes is never going to use java and that's a no but what java looks like in kubernetes in general is definitely different than what it looked like like middleware servers tomcat jetty websphere weblogic that that that's they're they there's no place in this environment they were trying to facilitate a lot of what Kubernetes was going to eventually do before Kubernetes was a thing for Java specifically. Mm -hmm. They wanted to talk about how you could share a process across different server instances and do session replication. Like it was doing a lot of those things. So there's no place for that. 
So at, at that point, it becomes like, well, what remains and why keep it? And I would say what remains is probably the, the two more primary used frameworks now. And frameworks is even, I would put in air quotes, Spring Boot and Quarkus. Quarkus is a lot more than a framework. So I don't really want to put it under that connotation. What I'd say is confusing about it. The, the reason people want to argue keep Java in Kubernetes is because people have had used Java for forever and they don't want to re, you know, get rid of all their engineers. They want to repurpose their skill sets. But if you go to Quarkus, for example, it's different. It's not like, I mean, yes, the syntax is the same, but programming on Tomcat in a servlet is way different than programming in Quarkus. Mm -hmm. So it, it, it begs the question at that point, like, yeah, Java's still going to be around, but is it going to be around in the same quantities that it was previously? And I think the answer to that's probably no. And it just depends situationally. I'm a .NET fanboy, so like for me, a business programming language, I'd go, oh, what, what's .NET doing? But that's just me personally. Yeah. Like, like, I'm like, oh, I kind of like I like the new I like the new direction. Twitter's gonna be a gas <laughs> later, I'm sure. <laughs> and no, I don't hate it. Everyone on Twitter don't like like you can't have it. You can't like something on Twitter because they think you're automatically against something. It's like, hey, I'm pro .NET doesn't mean I'm anti Java, folks. So like, yeah. stop. Like, like, like no, like, you have to pick. Have a, oh, yeah, it's like everything <laughs> Which else. Sucks for me because I'm the most middle ground person you'll ever meet about things. <laughs> and as of late, I write Rust like a masochist because Rust is not forgiving. Okay. So like for me, it's no. like you you go from like .NET to Rust, and everyone's just like, yeah. I, I, when you go back to .NET, you're like, oh, it's amazing. It's so easy. It's so great. And you go to Rust, <laughs> you're like, God, this girl. It's yeah. like. It separates it's it it separates you it separates the the engine or the engineers really quickly like it, like it separates developers really quickly when you have to like worry about the things you have to with Rust. I'll, I'll get off yeah. that high horse. All right. Well, no, you're good. You're good. You're good. That was short. That was that was impressive. Last one. What's this is lightning round. This is one minute each. Okay. Twenty twenty three and beyond. Kubernetes and quantum. Uh, no, I'll just make that easy. Just no, like, love it. I, the, the use case is so like it's so small. It's just like big players are doing it. And what does it? What is it solving? What is it solving for? Like I don't know. Let's let's just pick on any retailer. Let's let's pick on like Cabela's, right? What does it solve for? What is Quantum solving for Cabela's or Bass Pro Shop? Uh, shop there so i can say that <laughs> what is it going to solve like like if you're yeah. if you're the cio of the one of those companies and i don't know who the cio or cto is of best pro shops but if you're the cto like what is it solving for you like i think that's that industry driver now if it's like you know we're we're trying to be the first one there and there's a bigger use case or we're trying to like create cold fusion or some shit like that excuse me i'm sorry some stuff like that <laughs> you're gonna bleep that and i can completely get it but like for you know the industries that are you know adopting and going like all in with some of these technologies i'm i don't see it but i could be wrong so i'm not a huge quantum guy and by that i mean i haven't looked at, at depth with it the biggest use cases people traditionally talk about it for is um Things like, uh, from again, security background, right? Cryptanalysis, um, bre breaking RSA, um, you know, really just 
destroying the way that we we encrypt things because you could hypothetically work on a, on a, a cryptographic message so quickly you could disseminate it instead of hundreds of years it's like you know an hour right in theory so i don't see kubernetes like this is just in my head i don't see kubernetes being like we're going to deploy kubernetes on quantum that just sounds stupid but but um if quantum usage is anything like gpus in the sense of like you can do really like complex math at scale very quickly i see it as more if that does happen Mm-hmm. There will probably be some kind of like interface for being able to offload certain types of workloads or patterns to a quantum device that a kube cluster is able to communicate with. So like if, for example, you were like, oh, I want to run a data science workload in Kubernetes and you're using Hadoop and Apache Storm and all these other things, there might be a piece of what you're doing that gets funneled off to a quantum computing that, sure. That's the only way I could see it, but like it, it's completely up in the air. Like I, I don't know enough to, to say that it's even physically possible. Probably, but who knows? Okay. So there's – I'll say this. I didn't know much about quantum computing. I still don't. I don't know. SHIT, as Rob would say, <laughs> about that. Um, I talked to someone about this in like great depth about – nine months ago like tell me about quantum compute somebody who like knows something and i had a headache by the end of it so i agree with rob here no because (laughs) we have a hard time defining the simple things that we do understand just with kubernetes like service meshes quantum is not going to cross over there's just no way like not enough people know anything about it so it's it's kind of like a salacious expensive It'll be ridiculously expensive. Like who? Like you're not going to have enough of a draw because of the cost for a use case to do anything with it. Like, for they, sure. They put this in the article to add an extra buzzword keyword for you to Google search against. That's what it was for. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I agree. Oh. This is this is uh, it's a great fired. article. We we <laughs> we love these guys. We love these guys at the Enterprisers Project. Kevin Casey. He's he's a great author. We like him a lot. We've just spent 30 minutes talking through the article, you know, positively. So I'll just say that. But, like, yeah, sometimes we just put things in there to get everybody's juices going. So I think that's where we're at. (laughs) All right. Well, um, this is supposed to be a short one. This ended up being an hour. We're good at this. So every time you say it's short, it's like an hour. Like you you schedule fifteen minutes and we're over an hour already. It's every time. <laughs> we'll we'll get better at this, maybe. We'll see. Maybe, guys, maybe. guys, thanks for the thanks for hanging out. It was a yeah. good conversation. And yeah. um we'll talk soon. All right. Thanks everybody. Bye. See ya. Dynatrace exists to make the world software work perfectly. Their unified software intelligence platform combines broad and deep observability and continuous runtime application security with the most advanced AI ops to provide answers and intelligent automation from data at an enormous scale. This enables innovators to modernize and automate cloud operations, deliver software faster and more securely, and ensure flawless digital experiences. That is why the world's largest organizations trust Dynatrace to accelerate digital transformation. 